Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the I don't want people to go around thinking I have a problem edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. I got a million problems, and Donald Trump, who said that quote, he's one of them. Yeah, but, but you know what? The size of your hands is not one of your problems. Oh, it's never been a question. Thank you. I have, I have long fingers. Actually, you do have Thank very you. large hands. Aren't they? They're, they're, they're really quite extraordinary. I bet you wow. could palm a basketball. I can palm a basketball. Uh, I don't play basketball, but I, if I could, I could do it. I can grab onto things. I'm glad we know you don't have a problem. I have no problem, and I don't want you going around thinking I have a problem. And, and, that's the important thing. And are you going to tell the Washington Post editorial page and sit down with Ruth Marcus and yeah. explain to her that... It's very important that Ruth know that you not have a problem. Ruth, look at these hands. Don't that, be strident, but look at my hands. Maybe we need a, a picture of Shane's hands. This is my object lesson yeah. today. <laughs> Uh, in case you didn't know, this was, if we're talking about size of hands, you can probably guess we're talking about the Republic presidential Unless contest. Been living in Antarctica <laughs> for the last several months. It sounds yeah, nice. Sure. Oh, I really, I'm it's looking into, can I, do you need a visa to go to Antarctica? Like a <laughs> research like visa of some kind? Uh, yeah. Well, Donald Trump let the editorial po- board at the Washington Post measure uh, his hands. Measure his hands. <laughs> he talked a lot about his hands and a lot of other things. Um, which we'll talk about eventually uh, today. But uh, first, I'm here as always with my my friends Ben Wittes. Hello, Ben. Hey. Hi, Susan Hennessy. Shane, good to see you. And Tamara Kaufman Wittes. Hello. Always a pleasure, Shane. We're all here and we're drinking because it's we been that kind drinking. of a week. Cheers. We're doing a little and scotch. It's only Cheers. Yep. It is only Wednesday. We're preparing for the Trump era. Mm. Boy, there's not enough scotch. Um, this week on the show, it's actually been quite a. It's been a hell of a week. Mm-hmm. Um, Terrorists attack Brussels in a series of bombings. The FBI tells Apple, just kidding, we maybe can hack your phone after all. And, of course, Donald Trump sits down with the Washington Post editorial board, and no one's sure exactly what he said. Except except that he had big hands. Big hands, and apparently has some foreign policy advisors. We'll talk about that later uh, in the show. Uh, But first, let's let's, let's start with the big news uh, of the day. Uh, On Monday, uh, terrorists... uh, Probably linked to ISIS. ISIS has claimed responsibility for this. Uh, set off bombings in the Brussels airport and in a subway station. Uh, the last I checked, the death toll was more than 30. It was 35, I think. 35-ish, yeah. Right. And uh, so sort of the immediate signs of this are that it was, uh, in all likelihood, connected in some ways. We're not exactly sure how yet to the Paris attacks. There was one man, uh, Salah Abdeslam, who had fled the Paris attacks back in November uh, he appears to have been connected to the cell that carried this out in Brussels, which struck me as definitely significant considering I don't know of many examples, at least in Europe, of the same cell or network carrying out two attacks, particularly after presumably elements of that network had been tied up and rounded up. Um, but uh, we, we were talking about this actually before the show, so let's talk about it now. But the, the question, one of the first questions that has emerged from this is, 
you know, do we call this an intelligence failure? And, you know, we wrote a story in the Daily Beast the other day uh, about U.S. officials really castigating their Belgian counterparts, calling them, one person called them children, uh, saying they engage in, quote, shitty tradecraft, uh, really kind of taking the Belgians to task for, they felt, not paying attention enough to uh, the warning signs of this, which had been coming even over the weekend uh, publicly by some officials saying that might, this might be coming. Um, but, but Tamara, why, why don't you sort of, there was a great report in Haaretz this afternoon too, but talk about sort of this idea that, you know, what did the Belgians know and why didn't they act? Sure. Well, you know, my, my colleague Dan Byman has a good piece in the New York Times this morning, an op-ed describing the nature of the challenge that European countries and particularly Belgium faces. And, you know, partly there's a numbers problem here because there are hundreds of foreign fighters that have returned now uh, to Belgium and they simply don't have enough people to cover you know, it, it, you say if you want to follow one individual 24-7, that takes about 25 people to do, rotating in and out. And, you know, that's thousands and thousands of Belgian security that wouldn't be doing anything else. Um, and that doesn't account even for the families of these foreign fighters or other associates that they might be radicalizing. We now know that the two suicide bombers apparently in the Belgian, in this most recent Belgian attack, uh, were uh, people with criminal records yeah. in Belgium known to the authorities, but had not been uh, fingered as necessarily radicalized jihadis. Um, and so, there, you know, there's a challenge there just in terms of the scope of the problem. There's also a challenge because Belgium is a divided society, um, you know, kind of like the United States. It's got lots of local law enforcement entities that aren't necessarily sharing information well. It's got two national languages and, you know, very few Arabic speakers uh, in its security forces. And so all of this makes it a challenge. But the other thing is that, you know, it sounds as though they actually were on the trail of these guys. They had finally captured Salah Abdeslam after a long manhunt. Uh, He was apparently cooperating. They got the name and released to the public over the weekend the name of um, the alleged bomb maker basically trying to track this guy down. So clearly they were on the hunt. And appealing to the public for help, right? And appealing to the public for help. And they just didn't get there in time. Now, all that's not to say that if they had better tradecraft or more staff on the case or better information integration, that they might not have gotten there faster. But it does happen sometimes that you're on the trail of a plot and you simply don't make it in time. Right. But I think this brings up actually something that we've talked about on this podcast whenever uh, Brussels shut down for a number of days following the Paris Mm -hmm. attacks. And I I think they were shut down for three days, four days, something like that. And we were discussing how long it was rational to sort of hold the city. Um, And so I think that this points to the reality of the fact that a lot of times, even if you have really good intelligence, the best intelligence you can get is something's probably coming. Something's probably coming very, very soon. And then the question becomes, well, what do you do? Yeah, you do can't you sit, do you shut down the city? You shut down the city yeah. again, right? I think you're, being, you're all being soft on the Belgians here. <laughs> um, first of all, it's an extraordinary thing for the U.S. intelligence and law enforcement community to be, you know, speaking uh, for attribution uh, to the Daily Beast ragging on a European law, a, Euro- a European 
uh, nation's capacity in this area. Well, especially uh, in the immediate aftermath yeah. of an attack, it's pretty... And for that to be the, the reality... The you belt, think they must have really fucked up? They must Excuse have me. really <laughs> fucked up. We they must have small out. hands. Just national security, we don't um, believe. Uh, their, their, their hands must be such that they really have a problem. I don't know that that's true. I mean, look, these tensions across different intelligence communities... Uh, exist. They've existed for a long time. Um, and certainly statements that are far stronger than this are said within the halls of the various intelligence agencies. The fact that it's sort of bubbling up out into the public space in the yeah. aftermath of what is a failure, right? Anytime there's a successful intelligence, uh, uh, terrorist attack, that's an intelligence failure. I think it speaks to kind of the level of frustration and, and emotion and anger right. um, that this community that's tasked with just what is starting to feel like an impossible job. I think you're, I, 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 I don't know. I, you know, when Madrid happened, we didn't hear, uh, we didn't see news stories or U.S. intelligence, uh, uh, people, uh, questioning the competence and seriousness of the Spanish. Yeah, but that's when, because when the Lund- United States was still struggling with these issues itself, and maybe there's a sense here now that, well, we've got it all figured out. Why can't you just do the same thing? But it's not the same scope of threat that we face here in the U.S. I don't, not at all. I don't know. The, you know, I think there, there have been a lot of countries that have had significant terrorist events. Turkey just the other day, and you don't hear uh, U.S. intelligence people whispering, you know, the Turks are, are, are really incompetent and they've got a real problem. And there's something about... Right, but there's been this long-term sense about Belgium that it had been a safe haven for jihadists, that they hadn't rooted out this stuff earlier That's the on. point. Yeah. Right? right? But I don't think yeah. that necessarily speaks to tradecraft. That speaks to some sort of a, of a, of a, a cultural issue. sense. Well, and this, this came through, I think, in, in some of the reporting we were doing yesterday, too, with this frustration that... I think we actually quoted one person in the story saying... They don't want to admit that their country is being overrun by this. And now overrun may be a strong term, but like this idea that, that the Belgian government and maybe to some degree Belgian society didn't want to acknowledge that they had this growing radicalized population within their midst and like, no, that couldn't happen. Because they believe here. in their pluralism and their multiculturalism too well, much to admit yeah, that. Yeah. And to that, to there was interestingly, we, we actually dug this up and put it on our website. There was a, a public service announcement that was done after the Paris attacks when police had been linking the, the Paris cell to actually being, you know, more like based in, in Belgium and having these important linkages and following the guys there where the Belgian, like somebody set up a phone booth where random people from around the world would call in and catch like, like in a public square and catch Belgian people like by surprise. And they'd say, hi, I'm calling from Germany or I'm calling from Portugal. I was just wondering, is it safe to visit? I heard that people have guns and bombs there, and they were like, oh, that's a preposterous. No, 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 you're thinking of Paris, blah, blah, blah. And it was this actually kind of moving, touching ad, but really demonstrating that, the, that they were taking very seriously this idea of projecting to the world, no, we're not like Paris. That's so not happening Resilience here. to a fault is what yeah, you're saying. Like, I mean, that seems to be like what I'm detecting denial. from people who are criticizing them is denial and, and, and really saying, no, it could never happen here. Well, no, it's, it's absolutely happening Well, there. so an attack at this level, I think... <clears throat> is going to compel uh, any democratic government to respond in a way that, that shifts, you know, expectations yeah. have now, are now going to shift among the Belgian people, and so policy is going to shift as well. I, I have a memo for the press on reporting on terrorism in Belgium. Uh, Malbec is a kind of wine. 
Malenbeck is a neighborhood <laughs> in oh, Brussels. Thank you for that public I, service announcement. You know, I, a number of times yesterday, if listening to the coverage of this, I'm like, am I missing something? something? Yeah, when, when did Malbec become the hotbed? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's been, particularly on broadcast media, Although a I lot of... done some terrible things after Malbec. Oh, sure. <laughs> in Malbec with it. We all have to beware of yeah. Malbec. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, more to come, obviously, uh, on on this. Um, okay. Uh, in other news, um, here's a wordplay for you. Uh, the FBI tells Apple, just kidding. Whoops. Whoopsies. Maybe. We can maybe hack your phone app, hack the iPhone after all. Which, uh, which is like good news, bad news for Apple, right? Because the good news is... I think it's like bad news, bad news for Apple. <laughs> well, so just to bring okay. people up to speed real quick. So the Justice Department this week in Apple were... DOJ and Apple were supposed to face off in a California courtroom over this question of whether or not Apple can be compelled to assist the government in extracting information off the San Bernardino shooter's iPhone, or the one he used, that is. Uh, and the DOJ said we want to postpone that hearing because an outside organization has come forward with a way that might, just might, be able to accomplish what we need to do without Apple's help. You think this is bad news, bad news? Well, right, so a number of things. One, uh, the Department of Justice said on Sunday, I believe, uh, that they had heard on Sunday morning that there was a possibility that this tool would work. Um, they said that they'd, they'd uh, tested a number of different tools that had, that had not been successful. We still don't know. The F all that's happened in the case is that the Department of Justice has asked for an extension in order to conduct the testing. Um, so I, I think it's sort of it's premature to, to, just, to say what the impact on this case is going to be. Maybe the, the impact will be nothing. That said, if the tool is successful, I do think it's bad news, bad news for Apple. Because one, now there, now the vulnerability that they sort of warned everyone that was cancer, that that was the end of the world, exists. Oh, it's real. And yeah. they don't control it. They don't control no, an it. An Israeli company does, reportedly. And I think it really puts the lie to a lot of their positions, right? Their, their essential position was, we have a secure device. And the United States government is asking us to create this terrible thing, this cancer. Tim Cook calls it cancer. Yeah. Well, look, if it's cancer, it's not that big of a deal to get pancreatic cancer when you already have brain cancer, right? <laughs> so it turns out you're already sick. And, and the question, and then I think we, the question sort of becomes, all right, well, in, if we have an insecure device, how much more insecure is that? Uh, also kind of give the lie to, I think it also gives the lie to the FBI's argument. I mean, how many, no less than 10 times the FBI claimed in its briefs and Comey said publicly, there's no other way. There's no other way we can... Now, maybe no other way that we know of at the time. Right, but I, no. think, that, I think they always said there's no other so, way that, that so we I know of. So I actually, well, think, I actually think the FBI comes out of this really clean, which is um, their obligation was to look for ways to do it. They looked for ways to do it. They didn't find any. They asked a court to intervene and compel Apple to help. They kept looking while they did it, and they disclosed a way as even before they found the way that existed, they disclosed that it might be the case. I'm not sure what anybody would expect from them. Okay, well, and, and now neither side has to go through the uncertainty of a judicial proceeding that might not break their way. But except, except until the next time when they will have to do it. Well... If, in fact, this Israeli company has come up with a way to break Apple's unbreakable, unshakable 
Encryption. For this phone with this operating well, system the company, configured, we should this say these are according to news reports. They have not been confirmed yet, but it's a company called Celebrite uh, which is in an Israel. Israeli company, right? Which I, I think I, 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 I don't like such a happy guy. don't hold me to Celebrate. this, but I mean I think it's certainly iPhone iOS eight versions and, and recent ones too, and older ones who they claim that they can break. So, but so you're, but if you know to that point, I mean like it's. I mean, if they can actually break this phone, okay, great, until the next time. But here's the problem I have with this. It's like, let's just say for sake of argument, and we don't know sitting here on a Wednesday if this is the actual company that can do it, you're telling me that a company, you know, with a website that I'm looking at right now that says, deep insight into mobile devices, making mo mobile data valuable, enhancing today's mobile world, that reportedly has a contract with the FBI for getting data off mobile devices, the FBI wasn't aware of that? Yeah, but we don't know that they could have come up in the last week with this tool, right? right they could right. have been diligently working on it. Look, I, I think that, that um, sort of the FBI and then sort of people who are sympathetic to that position have to be honest about the fact that, yes, on any given system, even a system in the future, it's almost inconceivable that there would be a consumer device that, that there is no possible way to get access to. The problem is, is that the possible and the practical can be really, really far apart, right? That, that there's serendipity involved in it, right? So, so yes, in a, um, whenever the case becomes uh, known worldwide, sort of every mind of the information security community gets set to this one issue, either because they don't want the Apple to have to create this software or as just a point of, of personal pride. Then, then you get, then you have a solution. I think it would be naive to think that, oh, therefore we're always going to be able to get a solution in the future. I think that's probably false. Can I also just add to that that there's something very weird about conducting law enforcement on the basis that if you happen to have an exploit available to you or a company on contract that has an exploit available to you, you get to effectuate your warrant. But by the way, if you're the Podunk City Police Department and you don't have Celebrite on your payroll, maybe you don't get to effectuate your warrant. And by the way, you only get to effectuate your warrant if the specific uh, exploit happens to work with the specific configuration of the phone. And so what you have to tell a court is, yeah, we can open this phone unless we can't, so we'll show up to the hearing unless we don't. And... By the way, please, uh, uh, you know, don't order Apple to help us yet because maybe we can do it or maybe we can't. And by the way, let me flip that argument on its head, right? So, so also law enforcement is not so, supposed to work such that certain individuals, namely those that have, that are economically able to access designer technologies like iPhones, are able to say, you can't effectuate your warrant against me. Uh, whereas people who, uh, who own phones like Android systems that are widely believed to be accessible by law enforcement, but are, uh, uh, far more prevalent among communities that are uh, socioeconomically and racially different mm -hmm. than, than communities that, that tend to use Apple products, right? We're saying that you get to have a different relationship with your government, a different relationship with the criminal justice system based on the kind of phone you can afford. This is deeply problematic to me. So how long until... Uh Basically, you know, Cy Vance and every D, every prosecutor out there and the FBI, and everyone just comes forward and says, you know, celebrate, sell us your product. I mean, this sounds like a great day for a company. That's well, that's the way we let's. No, 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 but, but let's start with 
the People's Liberation Army, and I, I don't suppose the Israelis will be doing business with the uh, Revolutionary Guard in Iran, but they might be doing business with all sorts of, you know, entities in Russia. Um, and I mean, and I th- it's certainly the case that uh, a lot of Chinese companies have come and bought Israeli companies who are doing all kinds of tech R and D. Um, because they, you know, not related necessarily to intelligence and national security, but it's and good this for Chinese sort of industry. This so they're gets, buying up those companies. Yeah. This wow. gets to sort of the almost absurd outcome, which is that now Apple is demanding that the FBI tell it what the tool is so that Apple can patch against is it. Is Apple demanding that? So or? they haven't demanded it. Yes, so Bruce Sewell has come out and said that they, they, they want to know what the technology is. Well, maybe sure they, they should file an application <laughs> under the All Writs Act to compel the <laughs> FBI to help them out. I'm surprised nobody knew this yet. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm being cynical. I'm, I'm here, sensing but. a little schadenfreude in your tone, Susan. Would that be fair? I mean, look, it's, it's embarrassing for everybody, right? But I think the thing that is... Um, you know, I'm a little bit laughing about is how quickly this community that, by the way, uh, a lot of this sort of crypto libertarian community had put forward this notion of lawful hacking as the solution, right? Don't make Apple do anything. Don't, it's hard enough to secure a system. Just figure out how to beat it. Then the FBI comes back and says, oh, all right, well, we did that. And now all of a sudden they've moved to, oh, you have this great ethical, moral, and uh, alleged, although not in reality, legal obligation to share the vulnerability. It's sort of, it's like, it's it's mind-boggling, just a sort of, of how quickly these arguments shift. It can make you feel like you're going crazy. So maybe um, Apple should reconsider its policy of not paying for bug bounties. So I yeah. think we are hearing this more and more. So I think, I, I mean, I think in, in all seriousness, uh, it is a very odd position that Apple has no obligation to help the FBI but the FBI has an obligation to burn its own exploit by way of, of helping Apple. Yeah, that is bizarre. Wow. A weird case gets weirder. It certainly gets weirder, and it's going to be hilarious if it doesn't work. I want to see them with drawn swords at sunrise. Oh, that may be Tim really Cook. Good old Jim Comey. Yep. By the way, I, I do think in a mano a mano, Jim Comey would totally take Tim Cook. Jim Comey's a big, large he's a, man. He's a large man. He has large hands. He does. Oh, he doesn't. He doesn't have a problem. Yeah, no. <laughs> yes. He's tall with large hands. But something tells me that if somebody like behind Jim Comey's back said he had little hands, he would feel he would not feel compelled to respond in the slightest. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, Susan. Speaking of incredibly <coughs> small cocktail wiener fingers. <laughs> <laughs> and now a dramatic reading. <laughs> Marcus. You chose to raise it during a debate. Can you explain why you had no choice? Trump. I don't want people to go around thinking that I have a problem. I'm telling you, Ruth, I had so many people. I would say 25, 30 people would tell me every time I shake people's hands, oh, you have nice hands. Why shouldn't I? And by the way, by saying that I solved the problem. Nobody questions. I even held up my hands and said, look, look at my hands. This is just a snippet of truly, I mean, I, I'm trying to think. It's a piece of performance The last time that I, exactly, that I saw, I think I was in college like doing experimental theater, like maybe reading a lot of Ibsen. God, or I'm glad Pinter. we were not friends. Ibsen, anywhere. I, I was probably on acid. This. It was extraordinary. This, if you haven't done yourself the favor of reading the transcript of Donald Trump's interview, the full transcript, the full not the thing, recording, which cannot do it justice. Like, have a drink, indulge in your voice of choice, because it'll actually probably make the experience more lucid. 
Can I just say that, so I worked for the Washington Post editorial page for <laughs> nine years, and uh, I sat in many of these meetings, um, and I've never sat in one like this. It's, it's I astonishing. believe it. It is unbelievable. I, I actually put this on my Facebook page, and I, 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 you know, and I usually don't make strident commentary. I try not to be strident. Um, about things. Oh, it's but really, okay. You're allowed to be strident. You're male. Oh, good. You're a man. Oh, That's good. a leader. I thought the other thing. Just kidding. Okay. <laughs> um, but no, I really, I mean, I, I, I put on there, I said, I've never seen anything like this. It is truly, it is gibberish from start. It is the dictionary definition of gibberish. And I said, I would love to critique this, but I can't make any sense of it. You know what? I disagree. It is not <laughs> gibberish. It's actually quite revealing. You're the it. Trump whisperer. No, I'm not, I promise you okay. I am not the Trump whisperer, nor would I wish to be. But he does have some very decided views. I will not call them policy, platform, planks, or anything that developed. I think that a lot of what this interview reveals is how fundamentally ignorant he is about basic facts, about libel law, about NATO, about Saudi Arabia, about ISIS, about all kinds of things. But despite that, he does have some very decided views, and they point in a particular direction as far as national security goes. And I think it's, it is worth parsing, to the extent you can, this odd interview to get at those views. Uh, let, me, let me point okay. out a few things. We have things. another reading, okay. Well, not a reading, but, you know, a few <laughs> citations. So Jackson Deal asks Trump about the future of NATO. He says, look, it's a great thing to have, but why is the United States the one that's bearing the burden of all that stuff? We're not getting help. We pay hundreds of billions of dollars to supporting other countries that are, in theory, wealthier than we are. He talks a lot about Germany in that regard. Because um, they're feeling really rich there in Germany Because they're feeling these really days. rich in Germany right now. He's, you know, he says if you look at Germany, if you look at Saudi Arabia, if you look at Japan, if you look at South Korea, I mean, we spend billions of dollars and they have nothing but money. He said we spend billions of dollars on Saudi Arabia, clearly ignorant of the fact that Saudi Arabia buys billions of dollars in weapons from the United States, subsidizing a good chunk of our uh, American defense industry, and that the Gulf states also... Um, in fact, pay for a lot of the military infrastructure. We're, we have no base in Saudi Arabia, but in Qatar next door, the Qataris built that base. They constructed it. We use it. Um, you know, so it's actually a very good deal. NATO, of course, uh, I think there has been an issue of burden sharing, uh, and that's reasonable. But the, the, the question you have to ask is whether it's at all in America's interest to pull out of Europe just if the just because the Germans aren't um, financially capable right now of, of putting in more. And, and as smaller countries, they do not have the large military that we have, and they never will. So I'm a Tammy. I think that there is a lot of really revealing stuff in here, considering the fact that there's almost no facts. Uh, <laughs> Maybe so that's I'll do, some made up facts. I'll do my own dramatic reading. Yeah. When okay. asked about his, his views on, Ch on the South China Sea and the Chinese behavior in the South oh, China yeah. Sea, Trump, well, look, we have power over China and people don't realize it. We have trade power over China. I don't think we're going to start World War III over what they, what they did. It affects other countries certainly a lot more than it affects us. But, and honestly, you know part of it. I always say we have to be unpredictable. We are totally predictable, and predictable is bad. 
sitting in a meeting like this explaining my views, and if I do become president, I have these views that are down for the other side to look at. You know, I hate being so open. That is that was fascinating. It's this mad dog of history kind of role that he wants to take on as president. He wants to be unpredictable. It's also a great reason why he can't actually tell you what he thinks on these specific policy questions because that would be giving too much right. away. But I thought I thought Fred Fred Hyatt's reaction to that was really interesting. So Fred responded to that by saying, "Wait a minute, but there's there's downside to unpredictability too." And didn't maybe you know Dean Acheson was uh, responsible partly for uh, provoking the Korean War by not being clear enough with the North Koreans that we would actually defend South Korea militarily. And, uh, you know, I... Well, but this was Fred's mistake. Well, <laughs> Fred was trying to have a substantive conversation with somebody who doesn't do substantive right. conversations. Right. So, 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 so here's, I think, the fundamental problem with this meeting which is that this is a group of people who ask questions on the expectation that there is, the question is part of something like a dialogue. And Trump receives questions on the basis that they are momentary, you know, guideposts in his monologue. Not that they're, that they're something that you really respond to. They're just, they're just jumping off points. And so I think, like, the problem is that, you know, having a conversation with Fred and Jackson Deal and Ruth Marcus is, you know, a different operation from their point of view than it is from Trump's point of view. They're looking for answers to their questions, and he's on send mode 100% of the time, and they're not on receive mode on the things that he's projecting. But do you think they're too soft on him? I mean, a couple of times they go back to try and get him to answer the question. But I think I think uh, Marcus at some point even says, "All right, let's move on." Right. Yeah, but that's, I think, they I think were that's baffled. because right. I think it's because it became clear relatively quickly. And sometimes you have meetings like this where you sit down with somebody that you think you can have a conversation with, and you realize that actually. They're operating on a totally yes. different framework. There's no way yes. you're ever going to be able to see to to be on the same page to have the conversation, and so you just move on. I've been there, and you know, and yet I think despite the fact that they couldn't pin him to the wall and get his answer NATO up, you know, yes or no, they still did get a lot out of him. Yeah. Whether it was the South China Sea stuff where he said, look. This doesn't really matter to the United States as much as it matters to other countries. Or his statement about, you know, when the U.S. pulled out of Iraq, it should have kept troops ringing the oil wells so that the United States could be the rentier power. Because that doesn't power, count right? as still having troops in Iraq. Well, no, because the U.S. should have the oil. But I at, or Or at the end where he says... You know, they're pushing him on whether the way he's engaging is presidential. And he says, well, I actually think it is presidential because it's winning. And winning is a pretty good thing for the country. And, you know, so I think they actually did manage to pull back the curtain a little bit on who this guy is and how he thinks about the world. So I, I think you're both giving them insufficient credit and too much credit at the same time. Oh, well, okay. So, so, um, that sounds very Trumpian. <laughs> no, because I'm not talking about winning. 
Um, and I'm, my hands are whatever you they are. My hands are fine as well. Your hands are fine. Yeah, my hands are fine. They've right. got some cuts on them. So look, Trump, um, anybody who's watched Trump on the Sunday talk shows, and he's on the Sunday talk shows every week, often many of them. Calling in. Uh, well, and, you know, I, I listen to them, so I don't, I don't actually watch them, but, um, he's, he's on every week, and he sounds exactly like this, and I don't think they were baffled. I don't think they would have been surprised by this at all. He, what this is, is a much more extended, somewhat more foreign policy focused example of what he does every week, only he does it without advertising interruptions, and with a more sophisticated, less least common denominator set of questioners. Um, so I don't think, you know, they were expecting to pin him down and force him to have a real policy conversation. I think anybody who's watched him knows that that's not um, possible. On the other hand, you know, um, you learn... I'm not really sure we learned anything about him we learned this. the least racist person that you'll ever meet. But we we did. We learned his list of foreign policy advisors. We That's did. true. We That's did. true. We did. Which 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 we should mention those really. Well, I want to. We'll mention this in a second. I just want to make one comment though on the Sunday Show thing. I think you're right, and he practices a very calculated kind of rope a dope evasion, which he's doing here. Mm -hmm. Like for instance, when he evades the question of whether he would use a nuclear weapon against ISIS by stopping the conversation and saying, I'll tell you one thing, this is a very good looking group of people here. Can we just go around the table so I know who the hell I'm talking to? And they never return to the question. Mm -hmm. That's right. And that's like three quarters of the way through right. the interview too. Right. So that's as you say, you know, before we talk about the advisors, that I think that the difference though with this though, and, and you're you're getting at it too when you say this is more foreign policy focused, most of the questions he gets in the Sunday talk shows are about the campaign. Right. And about his competitors and about what he said this week. And it's kind of Trump doing Trump or Trump talking about being Trump, this is the first time I've really seen him be forced to sit down in an extended way with serious people and say, how would you deal with this? What is your policy on X? And, you know, and to your point about, like, you know, Dean Acheson, like, I will wager he doesn't even know who the hell that is. But, but, right. but the point is, if you're Jackson Deal and you're sitting down to prepare this, to, do, to, do, to get ready for this interview, or Ruth Marcus or Fred Hyatt, you don't think to yourself, to go back to Susan's point, ah, I can pin him down if I'm just really focused on my issue. I can pin him down on X or Y or Z because you've watched him enough to know that he's not going to answer any question that he's not, doesn't feel like answering. He doesn't feel like answering most questions. He has no idea what the answer, uh, what answer he should give and he doesn't care because he actually is just on send mode about winning and, and, you know, mercantilism all the time. And so I, th I don't think, I don't think it's, it's reasonable to criticize them for saying, okay, let's move on and not sort of pinning them down. But I also didn't learn much about him that I didn't already know from, from watching endless interviews with him on the we Sunday did talk get shows. One definite position out of him, which is that he opposes DC statehood. Oh, well, right. that's. That, since that was on the verge of happening anyway, but for Trump's opposition. Um, but let's talk about his foreign policy advisors, because uh, he was asked that um, 
at the top by Fred Ryan, the publisher, asked him at the very top, uh, where where's the news came in. So um, I've, I've heard, the best description I've heard, I think, uh, to describe this group of five people, uh, lightning rods and lightweights. Mm. I like this. And also who? And yeah. huh? <laughs> I mean, truly, I mean, there was, I think, I think it was, it wasn't Corey Shockey, but maybe it was Corey, but it was somebody in the kind of the camp of, in the dear God, not Trump camp, who said, like, immediately when we read these names, we were all going to Google because we don't know who most of them are. So the most well-known on there is um, Waleed Ferris, who... But ironically, the Waleed Ferris... So on Fox News referred to him as Muslim during an interview with Trump. Oh, really? And Trump oh, did hilarious. not correct them, right? So, so I don't know that much about Waleed Ferris. The one thing I do know is that he is a Lebanese Christian who, yeah. who derives it's, most... It's, it's kind of a so. central part right. of his yeah. identity. Like, it's, it's the one part of his identity that sort of is well-known. Trump appears to not know that. So one, the issue of Fox assuming that with a name like that obviously he's muslim i'll put that aside for they, but would, would trump let him in the country if if trump thinks you're muslim but you're not do you get into the country if, if you've been a terrorism commentator for fox news as long as wally ferris then yes although trump hates fox news <laughs> he yeah. hates That's it true. now yeah. It's like yeah. an SAT question. Right? <laughs> so, you, so you have Oli Ferris, who, you know, who, by the way, was a co-chair of the Middle East policy team for Mitt Romney, although there was reporting that later suggested that that was some dog whistle attempt by the <laughs> Romney campaign mm-hmm. to, like, get right with neoconservatives. And Mitt Romney had lots of other people advising him. Uh, but Wally Ferris, who is, you know, is a widely criticized Islamophobe. I don't think that, I think that's a fairly objective thing. To Not say, that many people have, have called him that. Uh, very controversial. Uh, who actually gave an interview today in which he, uh, to NPR and Stevens Keep, in which he said, Oh, Trump is just saying these things about that he would torture terrorist suspects because it's a political campaign season. I'm pretty sure if he got into office, people would advise him maybe to take a different course. Super reassuring. Yeah. Um, so there was also, uh, let's see, who else do we have here? Then I we had, get to the hung list. Yeah, so, this, so now we've got... Um, Which is the right... Mind right. you, we've gotten to one name, and now we're jo- at the Joseph E. List. Schmitz, who was a Defense Department Inspector General in the first term of the Bush administration, uh, who himself was accused of, uh, in, in, in various investigations, uh, blocking investigations of senior Bush administration officials. Always a good sign and, for an inspector right. general. Spending, yeah, and sending taxpayer money on pet projects. Also criticized for having what sources described the LA Times as a, quote, unusual fascination with Baron Friedrich von Steuben, <laughs> a revolutionary war hero regarded as the military's first inspector general. Schmitz reportedly replaced the Defense Department IG seal in its offices across the country, with one now bearing the von Steuben family motto in Latin, which translates to under the protection of the Almighty always. Okay, so we've got some Baron von Steuben <laughs> fetishists going on here. Um, Keith Kellogg, who had the, yeah, the distinction, if you want to call it that, of being the chief operating officer for five months of the Coalition Provisional Authority. Great. Which I read a lot about in my earlier days. Uh, uh, Carter Page who is a Naval Academy graduate who works in the oil sector uh, and who has written a lengthy blog post uh, talking about how it was the Obama administration that incited the riots uh, in the Maidan in Ukraine, and that's why the president of Ukraine fled. Excellent. Which, Excellent. by the way, is a, is a theory that our former ambassador to uh, Russia, Mike McCall, has publicly described as essentially a paranoid conspiracy theory that has gripped the mind of Vladimir Putin. 
Wish it were true, it though. Oh, right. so, but it, right. makes, it makes perfect sense that Trump, who admires Putin, would have an advisor who admires a Putin conspiracy yes. theory. Putin, yes. who still has not responded to my challenge oh, to fight him. Let's, you know what? Why don't you just go create a Carter website page. with a ticker? Yeah. <laughs> Call has Carter page. Putin fought Ben? And then they can go and it'll just it's say no with yeah. a count. How many days has it been? Yeah. Yeah. And finally, uh, George Papadopoulos, who has got a lot of ops in his name. He's got a lot of ops, not to be confused with the actor who played the dad on Webster. Um, not to be confused. Oh, thank God. I was that's Alex Papadopoulos. That'd be way better. That guy's advising so much better. I felt terrible. I'm then George Papadopoulos, who um, graduated from college a few years ago, has worked as a researcher at the Hudson Institute. Uh, and, uh, and until recently, until the Washington Post pointed it out, listed as one of his foreign policy credentials that he was a representative to model UN. But we don't know which country he <laughs> played. In well, the he said a U.S. representative, but we don't know what country he played when he got there. Yeah. Look, I, which is, I mean, I don't mean to be ageist about this, you know, but I mean, it's sweet. It's just, it's cute. It's very, it's you're adorable. It's cute until you're advising you're a presidential When you're candidate. one of five people who he has said is advising him. So, I mean, our reaction to this, I mean, I think in the press was largely like what in the, in the foreign policy community too, which it's not to say that like maybe these people don't have interesting ideas, but they I appear actually, to have never been called upon them, uh, called for in this manner. And these are the only five people that he's really Although saying. he did tell the Post, we have many other people but that's a representative group. And if that's a representative group, I'm reassured. Aren't you, Susan? Yeah, no, that's, if that's your A team. Can we also talk about the fact that Frank Gaffney is advising Ted Cruz? Yeah. We did last, we did, week. last week. We did, we did yeah. talk about that. Can we See, talk this about is that the again? problem. Frank Gaffney was taken. And so <laughs> Trump Frank Gaffney, who team. still has lawfare.com oh. and lawfare.org. Oh, Frank. Please give it up. I don't want to seem like one of those eggheads, as Donald Trump on CNN yesterday called people who come up with that international law stuff. <laughs> Maybe he didn't use the word stuff. But, uh, yeah, I think he get That was the news, the, the only news from his sit-down. And, um, yeah, it just it was um big old question mark for me. March, end of March of an election year, guys. March Madness. This is still six months past right. All right. Uh, uh, let's go on to object lessons. Um, right. I'll go first. I have, you're going to like this. Let me pull this out here. This is, it looks like a gavel, but it's a pen. A gavel pen? It's a gavel pen. Oh, that's hilarious. Oh, very cool. It says Brandeis University. It says Brandeis University. I was up at Brandeis this week for their celebrating uh, the 100th anniversary of Louis Brandeis's appointment as a Justice of the Supreme Court. Brandeis, of course, being the namesake for Justice Brandeis. And having the distinction of having the nastiest confirmation battle to the Supreme Court ever. Ooh. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, we didn't get to talk about that. Um, but, uh, but this was just a very cool uh, um, a series that Brandeis is doing where they're bringing Brandeis scholars in connection with policy experts in connection with people who don't know anything about Brandeis and are not policy experts. <laughs> I fell into the third category. <laughs> to talk about and write essays on things that were important to Brandeis. So we all weighed in on the question of technology and privacy and civil liberties, drawing from the Olmstead decision, and then, of course, the, uh, the famous uh, right to privacy essay uh, that he co-authored. Uh, and it was great. It was just it was bringing people from different disciplines together, which Brandeis would have appreciated, I gather, uh, and trying to talk about, you know, what would he think if he were alive today? What would he make of the NSA? What would he make of Edward Snowden? That's, that was the subject of my paper. Um, but they're going to publish all of this uh, at the end of uh, 
the series, which uh, concludes later, I think, in the spring or the summer. Uh, so check it out. Go to the Brandeis University page. Just Google Brandeis uh, 100th anniversary. You'll find it. A lot of really awesome papers have been submitted. And um, and I got a cool pen. Yeah, nice. so that was the swag? Gavel swag? It was gavel swag, and I also got Brandeis M&M's. Uh, and a couple of booklets, and I got an awesome uh, insulated coffee mug. Whoa. Which I mean, it was a good swag bag. That's pretty good. Way yeah. to go, Brandeis. You better get it. It was lovely. Mm-hmm. All right, Susan. I will go next. Um, so my object lesson is dad joke, and it's a literal dad joke because I don't know if other people's parents do this, but my dad sends me humorous things On the he's emails. happened upon. On Wait, the uh, internet? Whose dad does that, really? Yeah, he just, <laughs> he loves, it's right, it's like it's the chain mail. It's like the chain mail yeah. of, um, of your parents. Uh, anyway, uh, they're usually not very funny at all. Um, but he's thinking of But you. he's thinking of me, and he saw something, and it made him chuckle, and he wanted me to smile, too. And so, I love you, Dad. Thank you for this. Um, so, one of the things he sent to me was uh, this this cartoon that is a drawing that I'm now showing the group of two dinosaurs <laughs> that are uh, attacking, or sort of monsters, I guess. They're very big. Uh, attacking uh, downtown Washington, D.C. They're Godzilla, um, basically. Yeah, like sort of Godzillas. Um, one is about to pluck off the dome of the Capitol building, and the other one says, you can't eat that, it has nuts in it. (laughs) Which, on its face, is like a pretty solid dad joke. However, I've printed it out to put in Ben's office, because it's funny, because Ben actually can't eat nuts. He's allergic to nuts, and so it's a very apt political cartoon. Yeah, it it has, um, the, the, the thing is that when I look at the Capitol and somebody says, you can't eat that, it has nuts in it, I, it's, it reads literal to me. Mm-hmm. Like, there probably are nuts in the Capitol. Mm-hmm. And if I ate the Capitol, I would probably have an allergic reaction yeah, to it. Yeah, they probably used almond oil in the paint. And there's the probably, you know, a dish of cashews some, somewhere. Some and dropped a peanut in there. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, peanuts are not nuts? Peanuts are not nuts. I'm not <laughs> Oh, they're legumes. Yeah. <laughs> if the Wittes family had a crust... <laughs> Peanuts are not nuts. That would be the motto of the Because every member of the Winnesota has literally said the words to me. Peanuts are not nuts. There you go. Tammy, oh, Tammy just closed the loop. I'd had, I had three, and now Tammy. Four for four. Oh, wow. Glad to make that hole for you, Susan. Uh, would you like to show your object? Sure. Well, my object is, uh, it's a virtual object. It's a tweet. And I just couldn't get enough of Donald <coughs> Trump this week. And so this is this is the Donald uh, responding. You know, this was all over Twitter last night. And I'll tell you what struck me about it in a minute. But he was responding to an ad by a pro-Cruise group featuring a photo. I don't think they're pro-Cruise. I think they're just anti-Trump. They're just anti-Trump. Okay. Called Make America Awesome, which is a great name for a group, by the way. Uh, an anti-Trump super PAC, and they pulled the photo spread that Melania Trump did for GQ magazine a few years ago, in which she is posing, as you can see, naked on a bare rug. Handcuffed as well. Which is oh, a... I missed that. Oh, Ew. Yeah. Okay. Ew. <laughs> Even more. Uh, so these are pictures that she voluntarily posed for that were part of a magazine photo spread. They did use them in their ad to say, meet Melania Trump, your next first lady. Not so nice, right? And there's always this question about hitting candidates' families. It's always a very sensitive subject. And so the Donald, unsurprisingly, uh, responded in his tweet <coughs> last night 
Lion Ted Cruz just used a picture of Melania from a GQ shoot in his ad. Be careful, Lion Ted, or I will spill the beans on your wife. So taking the level of this campaign from reality show all the way down to schoolyard bully, I think. But actually, what struck me about this was not the schoolyard bully, because I think we already knew that about Donald Trump. What struck me about this was the apostrophes. Lion Ted. Lion. Lion. L-Y-I-N apostrophe Ted. Why? Which he uses quite. He uses twice. He's he being, does. He's being folksy. Yeah. He's being folksy. Maybe no, he's just I trying he's... to keep the number of uh, characters down. No, because he's replacing the G with the apostrophe. Oh, so same and number. I want to know, what is his problem with Gs? Yeah, I'm with you. I just want to say I have no, no problem. problem. I have no problem with, with, with uh, uh, the pack using published photos of uh, Melania Trump and asking whether that's consistent with the role of the first lady. They're not invading her privacy or anything. Um, I tend to agree. Look, the photos are not taken out of context. Um, <laughs> well, what, what would be the ob- objectionable the context? The G is taken out of context. If it was, if it the G is taken out. <laughs> <laughs> Where is he holding these Gs, and wh- when is he going to release them to the public? Look, there's not a problem. He wants you to know his hands are fine, the, <laughs> the Gs are, are fine. fine. There's Gs no problem. Okay. You know what? I think our podcast has... Achieved the level of coherence of Donald Trump's interview with the Washington Post. Yeah. That's saying something. I feel like we achieved something today, though, you guys. I'm not sure if it's something we should be proud of, but we did achieve it. We'll try to do it again next week. (laughs) (coughs) That brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. Don't forget you can find links to our show archive or past shows at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us on Facebook at RATL Security. Four of us are on Facebook, too. Uh, the show is edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Donald Trump and the Hand Jive. Ooh. Ooh. And the big hands. And the big hands. Yeah. <laughs> hand Jive. No, of course, our, our, our music was performed by somebody who uses her hands quite uh, beautifully and elegantly. She has no problem with her hands. No, yeah, Sophia she doesn't have a problem. Has got zero hand problems. She's got a lot of problems, maybe. Donald Trump may be one of them. On behalf of Susan Hennessy, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, Ben Wittes, and my very manly hands and elegant fingers, we'll talk to you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.